0: It's March 6, 2006, and you're listening to the NACOcast with Christopher Millard, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. After a short vacation, the National Arts Center Orchestra returns next week to Southam Hall with a performance of one of the great works of all time, Johann Sebastian Bach's B Minor Mass. Our conductor is the highly respected Bach specialist, Helmut Rilling, and our soloists include soprano Zibula Rubens, mezzo-soprano Leoba Brown, tenor James Taylor, and bass Marcus Eichen. The choirs are the combined talents of the Ottawa Festival Chorale, under the direction of Lawrence Iwashko and the Vancouver Chamber Choir, led by John Washburn. Most of my orchestra colleagues will occasionally play the Desert Island Game. That's the one where you're required to list the ten pieces of music or literature that would sustain you in the event you were, say, washed up for years on a deserted desert island. Well, presuming that you could find a power outlet and that you managed to save a CD player from your quick-sinking ship, I suppose you would actually be able to keep your sanity under those swaying palm trees, but you would have to be pretty careful. My list would include a recording of Horowitz playing Chopin, Schwarzkopf singing Strauss's Four Last Songs, certainly Ella Fitzgerald singing the Cole Porter Songbook. Well, you get the idea. As a performing musician, I tend to gravitate to interpretations rather than just music itself. But I rather suspect that during my long declining years on that beach, I would eventually tire of individual performances and I would want to redo my top ten list with a view for the pure mystery and magic of the music itself. I would think of Mozart's later symphonies or his piano concerti, the operas Figaro or Don Giovanni. But ultimately my eternally lonely life there would find ultimate consolation in the music of Bach. The Goldberg variations, certainly, and a number of the cantatas, the magnificat, the passions. Well, it would be terribly difficult to prune the list. But I am sure of one piece, perhaps the greatest musical cathedral of the lot, if you will, that one work that offers the greatest consolation, and that's the B minor Mass. On today's NACOcast, we'll discuss some of the reasons why this music casts such a profound shadow and why it remains such an extraordinary experience for listeners in the 21st century. My guest today is Lawrence Awashko. An Ottawa native, Lawrence has an impressive list of credentials as both singer and choral director. He spent years of postgraduate studies in Vienna. He completed the choral conducting program at the Hochschule for Music and the lead in oratorio program at the Vienna Conservatory. Since his return to Canada in 1988, he has had a distinguished career as director of the Cantata Singers of Ottawa, chorus master of the Opera Lyra Ottawa Chorus, professor of choral techniques and vocal repertoire at the University of Ottawa, voice teacher at McGill University, and a frequent clinician, conductor, and consultant. Among Lawrence's teachers was Helmut Rilling, the conductor for our performance of the Mass this week. So, Lawrence, Helmut Rilling is an extraordinary figure in the world of Bach, especially. Tell me about your experiences with him.
1: The leader, actually, I would say, in uh, Bach repertoire interpretations. Um, In 1998, I had an opportunity to go and study with with Helmut Rilling in Stuttgart uh, at his Bach Wochen. He um, has a whole week where we study and I, being one of the conductors uh, with the Gechinger Cantorai and his orchestra, we would prepare four cantatas, which would be performed during the week. Um, he would be introducing them as part of as a Gesprächkonzert, which is a speaking concert. Mm-hmm. We would then uh, my colleagues and I, there were five conductors, we would take different portions of the cantatas and uh, perform them. But the culminating uh, event for the whole week where we were where we there was the reconstruction of a Bach liturgy, a liturgy that was done in the style of Bach's time, which involved all of the parts of the Mass, which are, of course, Kyrie, Gloria, or Kyrie Christe, Kyrie, and then Gloria, Sanctus, Credo, Agnus Dei, and Benedictus. And um, the Mass itself took, in the traditional time, of three and a half hours, which is a long time. Um, the, the Latin portion of the Mass was very interesting in that they would have Palestrina Motets, they would have... Um, Schutzmotets involved as part of this as well as an entire cantata, mm-hmm. which would be respective of uh, the scriptures that were read of that day and inspirational. So sometimes cantatas would take 25 minutes, sometimes 45 minutes, depending on, on um, the instruments that he would have had at that time. Mm-hmm. And also the vocal, vocal aspects of the choir and um, soloists as well. Mm-hmm. So we would uh, have heard an original Mass or liturgy which would have lasted
0: for that period of time. So let, let's just get back to the original purpose of the Mass and the motivations for composers to write for the Mass. In some cases, these would be part of their, um, of their employment requirements at whatever church they they were. I want to ask you especially about um, the history of the B Minor Mass itself. Uh, we understand that it was not assembled originally as... it was not composed as a single entity, but was rather put together as a, uh, a collection of a, of a number of, of works of bo- Box. But it apparently began, the, f- the first part of it, as the Misa of the... I think around 1732, mm-hmm. And it was it was just sections of the lit- liturgy. I believe the Curiae and the Sanctus. Sanctus. Yeah. The, the, the actual
1: Sanctus was was written in 1714. Okay. And uh, that was for Jubilate Sunday uh, for Christmas Day uh, in 1714. Um, what was very common at that time was the parody mass, which would be or parody that a composer would take a piece of music and he would put other text with it, or he would substitute things, which was very common uh, with composers. At that time, they would call that plagiarism now. <laughs> but at that time, it was very, very common. And Bach was very famous for that. He would take portions of um, portions of mass, uh, of not mass, but cantatas, and incorporate them in different aspects of his compositional styles. He wrote in a six-year period, 300 pieces of liturgical music in his first years at, um, at uh, in Leipzig. Yes. And he borrowed he borrowed from the period previous to that when he was in Weimar and Curtin.
0: A question of efficiency for exactly. him. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Can you imagine the amount of work that you'd have to do to prepare uh, an entire cantata, not only having to uh, compose it, but actually have to
0: rehearse it. And prepare the prepared, prepare yeah. the musician. So, now, most of the work from that period were, were German works, German text, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what, how, how do you view, first of all, the creation of the Sanctus originally, which was Latin? How, where does the the issue of the Latin liturgy, of the Roman Catholic right. Church liturgy, fit into the life of Bach, who was a Lutheran? The Lutheran Church actually was... Um
1: uh, Luther <laughs> preferred to have, this was a preference of his own, to have the liturgy sung in four languages, including German, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. He, that was his prefer- preference. He actually wanted young people to be able to speak all four languages uh-huh. and to worship in four languages. Uh-huh. So this is. Um, it's not uncommon that in the larger centers, such as in international centers, Leipzig, that uh, they would have a Latin mass still... Um, working and functioning as part of their liturgy mm-hmm. the the um, priests still faced the altar at that time, um, so it was it was not in our, our contemporary way of looking at Lutheran uh, literature or liturgy mm-hmm. in the country where there was perhaps less of a, um, an international flavor. they would have gone directly into the vernacular of the people, which is going to be german
0: mm-hmm. What's interesting to me about the B minor Mass now? Bach died in 1750, and I understand that the Mass was essentially assembled the year before he died, as you've mentioned from earlier works, from the early Sanctus, from the Credo, and mm-hmm. and some works from the 1730s, which seem to be tied into um, in an attempt for Bach to be employed by the incoming Elector of Saxony, who was indeed Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. So. There it seems to have been yeah. some politicking on his politicking part. Politicking on
1: his part, sure. Well, of yeah. course. I mean, he was—he was not—he was, not, he was a, a difficult character, and uh, he had a very big, uh, high temper, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I re- recall one of the uh, the sixteenth um, in the role from Bach, uh, Bilder, Herr Bilder, who is now the Cantor in in Leipzig. He told us a story while I was in Stuttgart that Bach um, got so angry with one of the bassoonists. Yes, famous story. <laughs> <laughs> and he threw his wig at them, which, which was actually uh, a challenge for a duel. Yes. So they, I think they did have a duel with the swords and whatnot. Well, the
0: elders of the church chastised him and made him apologize because apparently he had called the bassoonist a nanny goat bassoonist. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah. So <laughs> Bach, Bach has not left us a, a great tradition of bassoon solos. Oh right? dear, that's yeah, unfortunately. True. <laughs> so anyway, 1749, uh, not in good health mm-hmm. and. Perhaps um r- recognizing that he wanted to leave the culmination of his of his abilities in this genre he he puts together an an extraordinary uh, set of the complete Latin liturgy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He didn't hear it played, and in fact, it was not performed as a whole work until eighteen fifty nine a hundred and nine years after his death, which is you know, pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, pre- presumably under the uh, guidance of Mendelssohn, who was such a champion of Bach's work uh, from the 1840s on. Uh, so anyway, uh, the music itself uh, and the structure of the music is, I mean it's absolutely sublime stuff. I, I want to get into some some questions here about the theology. Now Bach was, in, in fact, we've talked about him about him being, Having a temper and uh, and being occasionally difficult and being politically savvy and all that, but in fact at the base of all he was an incredibly devout Christian. Oh yes. So, in the Christian faith, perhaps the central central core of the Christian faith is this is the sense that the Creator is incarnate in all things, that mm-hmm. the Creator is actively involved, that He is in, imbued in nature and in, in our daily lives, and Bach must have, of course, accepted this. Mm-hmm. So if we if we take the idea of, of God incarnate in the world, is there an argument to may, be made that a work of art of this incredible level of genius, would Bach have viewed himself at this point as an instrument of God's voice that perhaps he sees the B minor mass as God incarnate as an incarnation
1: difficult question mm. um, I feel that this is a combination of everything that he um, all the beauty that he ever created uh, comes together in this one one work if um, he Lived his last part of his life somewhat in the way that Beethoven lived his life, writing for himself, writing for the joy of of uh, creating. In his previous, um, you know, when he was employed as a cantor and whatnot, he had to produce. But in this last period of time, he was creating music which was solely for, for basically his. I wouldn't say gratification, but for the glory of God, exactly, as opposed to the glory of the the elector or for the city council. So it was a really personal, personal expression. So I would agree with you that it is actually um, God incarnate in the music that is actually being produced at mm-hmm. that time.
0: It's to me there's some similarities between great music like this and religious art. Especially icons, mm-hmm. and we, we especially know in the Greek Orthodox faith how faith how important the icon is, and we mm-hmm. go to museums and we see these images, and the church at the time encouraged the viewing icons as as being not just um, portrayals, but actually in some way God is incarnate in in the icon, so they have power. So. The common people would have an icon available to them in the church, or occasionally in homes. Mm-hmm. These beautiful gold leaf images of the of the Virgin Mary, and they became objects of worship in a, in a very personal sense. Mm-hmm.
1: The idea of an icon in, in being of, of Orthodox uh, religious uh, bent um, is that the the images were not allowed to be in a three dimensional aspect mm-hmm. because. W- we do not know god as such so they would allow it to be on a on a basically flat dimension yeah. which is the difference between the um the, the artwork which was done in in the broke period and and later on where it was a three-dimensional work also sculptures are not allowed into into the orthodox faith it's always just paintings on a flat surface yeah so um the The description of an icon I think that there's there's tremendous depth to be able to go into it spiritually because you're not you're not faced with the image of of um the human being. you can go beyond that so I would agree that this work is a very uh, iconographic in that way however he uses he uses in this piece uh, uh, for example at in um, at resurrection, um he uses uh the bass line as the voice of of uh christ and as uh, it's very in- interesting the bases in this in this chorus are the only ones who ever get a, an entire solo line which would be written in a solistic style and to have a group of 30 basses singing this together is quite a challenge i must say yeah,
0: yeah. But it's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? Yes. The the two-dimensional religious icon Mm -hmm. and perhaps the two-dimensionality of music on a score, and yet in the living of it, in the understanding of it, it takes on, for Bach, the glory of God. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is an extraordinary experience uh, at every level to to hear this piece. And it must have been, it continued to be for you, an extraordinary experience putting together a a, a choir performance of this When you have another choir coming in and another conductor. So we have the Vancouver Chamber Choir coming in from the West Coast with John Washburn, their marvelous leader of many, many years, you know John. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, I worked with John in Vancouver with uh, one of his uh, seminars that he produces for conductors uh, over the years. I think it was back in the 80s, 89, I think it went.
0: How have you worked out with Maestro Rilling and with John Washburn the preparation of this? Because there's not a lot of Mm -hmm. rehearsal time, so they arrive and we have to know what the tempos are.
1: Exactly. Well, it's very fortunate that uh, Maestro Rilling has actually recorded this. He has recorded all of the the repertoire of Bach, so we have an actual um, icon that we can follow from tempos and uh, dynamics, etc. Not necessarily that Maestro Rilling will actually do that. Right. Yeah. he might have changed, as, as we know Karian conducted uh, the Beethoven's symphonies, I think there were three different recordings of it, mm-hmm. and each one's different uh-huh. which is very interesting, So, but we're at least prepared in that way, I've been working not only with uh, with um, those recordings, but also with my colleague Dwayne Wolfe, who is coming to help with the, the production and, and uh, bringing things together so we've been collaborating, he has gone off, my schedule is very busy, uh, and he has gone off to Vancouver and has worked with the Vancouver Choir already, and uh, we'll come together and join together on the 9th of ninth um, of March. March, mm-hmm. and then um, we'll f- just continue rehearsing until the maestro comes on the twelfth. And
0: so, uh, Vancouver Choir Choir usually is a, around sixteen voices. I don't know how many they're bringing. Does that sound right? Uh, we I think
1: they're going to be twenty to
0: twenty-four. Okay, and how many voices from your Ottawa Festival? we are sixty.
1: Uh-huh. Sixty. Yeah.
0: So, what place does the uh, the Vancouver Chamber Choir is a professional choir. Mm-hmm. What place do they have in the ensemble? Are you going to mix them up? Or are they well, going to sit as a core in the middle? Mm-hmm. Or what's the plan?
1: We are planning to have them sit in the, in the co- as a core. Mm-hmm. Now, there's there's a, there's a problem in that there's a double chorus uh, section, which. Um, would be wonderful if we had a wonderful space to be able to ch- switch people around and the time to be able to switch people around, but from a technical point of view, we can't. So that double chorus will be um, mixed in within the, uh, the ensemble of the choir, which will be a challenge for us, but I mean, we're up to any
0: challenge. <laughs> Lawrence, how challenging is the B minor mass for the choir members?
1: <laughs> Hugely challenging. Um, Bach was influenced by the opera. Um at that time they had built a new uh new opera house in Dresden and brought in many many fine Italian singers who were phenomenal with coloratura and they would be able to do these melismas and especially the castrati who would be brought in and they would do these these Italian operas. So of course Bach would be have been uh influenced by that and um given his choristers um Those challenges of doing huge melismas and and whatnot, it would have been amazing to have um, had those boys actually do it the The thing though, was that those boys' voices at that time mutated or changed only at 17 or 18 or 19 years old so you had these boys singing as sopranos but in men's voices so they could have actually performed this kind of repertoire mm-hmm. at that time because mm-hmm. of the the actual physical structure of the of the instrument but for our chorus hugely difficult hugely challenging to be able to to do this uh, in a very clean clear Precise way. Would the soprano parts at the time be
0: castrati parts? As soloists, yes. As soloists. As soloists. But not in the choir, obviously. No. Right. Well, unfortunately, or I guess fortunately, I should say, we don't have a lot of castrati available to us (laughs) in 2006. (laughs) Lawrence, we have an amazing collection of singers for this performance. You have worked with one of them, James Taylor.
1: Yes, I have. In the past, he's been here at the NEC.
0: Mm -hmm. And three marvellous singers not known to Ottawa audiences, and I think by their resumes and their biographies, they look to be absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you that I've played the B minor Mass in my career several times, and it's always one of the great high points for me, and I I know the audiences will take huge pleasure in, in this performance as a chance to hear one of the greats, Helmut Rilling, huh? Oh, yeah. Lawrence Owashka. thank you very much for joining me, and we look forward to hearing the work that you've done with your choir in the concerts at the National Arts Center. We hope you can join Helmut Rilling in the National Arts Center Orchestra this week for what promises to be an evening of sublime music making. Our performances of Bach's B Minor Mass on Wednesday, March 15th and Thursday, March 16th start at 8 p.m. at Southern Hall of the National Arts Center. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca forward slash podcasts there you'll find our past episodes subscription links and instructions on how to subscribe you can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store search on NACOcast for the NAC this is bassoonist Christopher Millard